Well, good morning, church. Now, I don't know if you had this thought as Pastor Bill was reading, but our sermon text this morning is a difficult one to understand at first read. I don't know how many times I read through these verses this last week, but the truth is we're in the, we're in the deep end of the pool now. Maybe you've heard that, that expression that the Word of God is, is, is like a swimming pool and the shallow end is such that the deepest truths, the most important truths, the most essential truths for salvation, even a, even a toddler can wade into that and understand it. But the, the depths on the deep end of that pool are so deep that the greatest theologian can never fully probe and, and totally master its depths. So we're, we're in the deep end this morning. And, and I find it often that the most difficult texts actually yield the most encouragement. And, and the, the greatest jewels after taking the effort to, to mine those depths or, you know, to put on some scuba gear and, and to plunge those, those depths. So I just want to encourage you in your, in your own practice of reading God's Word at home, whether it's in private devotions or as a family, that when you come to verses, sections like Hebrews 2, that might be kind of hard to understand it at first read, that you not just kind of skip past it and, and keep moving on to the stuff that's easier to understand at first glance. But instead, I encourage you to, to, to kind of push through those question marks and to dive deeper. And, and, and when you do, and when you want to try to seek answers to maybe the questions that you have when you read a text, that you will often be amazed at the riches of God's Word, what God has for you. So my prayer for you this morning is that you will be deeply encouraged this morning as we, as we seek to mine some of these riches we can't mine them all because of the constraints of time. And I really thought about doing this in three sermons. But I do want us to get through Hebrews in a year, year and a half. So we're going to try to... And there's kind of one cohesive thought that's going on here, I believe. So I, I pray that you'll be deeply encouraged this morning. And we're going to spend some time on verse 10. Because this first verse tells us that Jesus Christ was made perfect through suffering. Now, how crazy is this to human thinking how, how can how can God be made perfect why, why would God and and some would even ask the question how could God choose to suffer for does, does having the capacity to suffer imply some kind of weakness that's why Muslims find the the cross of Christ and frankly the Jews did as well to be foolishness they're like no way. God can't die. He would never. God can't suffer. We suffer because we're made of clay. So we're going to look into that a little bit. We need to remember <clears throat> that what we see here isn't just plan B, but God's choosing a mission that involved his own suffering was actually plan A from eternity past. Remember that the cross of Jesus Christ was not an afterthought of God. It wasn't plan B after the tree, the failure at the tree of Adam and Eve, right? No, actually the tree was God's plan from, the, from eternity past to get to the cross, which he had foreordained from eternity past. Suffering. So let's look at verse 10. For it was fitting... Or we could say it was appropriate, it was right 
that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, there, there are so many jewels here to mine in this verse, okay? Um, let's start with he, for whom and by whom all things exist. That's, that's clearly talking about God, specifically God the Father. And, and we need a theocentric view of God. So often in our practice, we, we live as though God is here for us, but God is the one by whom and forth whom all things exist. He's at the very center of the universe and of all creation, so he should be at the very center of our hearts as well. In bringing many sons to glory. Now, now we could do a sermon just on this phrase, bringing many sons to glory, but what we see here is a focus on a relational or the relational aspect of the gospel. Now, Jesus came to this earth for many reasons. He accomplished a lot of different things. He accomplished our redemption. He, he saved us from hell. He forgave us of our sins and he gave us the gift of his righteousness. And I'm talking, when I say us, I mean those who have put their trust in him alone. Okay, he came for, he, he did all of those things through his life and his death and his resurrection from the grave. Okay, but here we see that he also came to facilitate God's adoption of us as his sons and daughters and actually lead us into the glory of heaven. So here we have that aspect of glorification, which would, is the part of salvation that we're still looking forward to, right? Because we're still living in these sinful, fallen bodies that are subject to pandemics and subject to, to all, kinds of, all kinds of weakness. But one day we will be glorified, made like Christ in heaven. And, and so the picture here, the idea is of a, a huge like multitude that Christ is gathering of sons and daughters and, and is leading through life and through the Rubicon of death all the way up to God's throne of glory, all the way up to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So that's the picture of like a hero leading the strong and it's growing and he's redeeming people from all people groups for the sake of God's glory and even their own glorification. Becoming part of a family, one family, one family unified through his blood, the blood of Christ, and through faith in him. And so here when we see the, the, that phrase, the founder of their salvation, well, it's talking about Jesus here. And the actual inter interesting word in Greek, uh, you could use the word founder, that's fine, but I think maybe a better translation would be really hero or even pioneer. Somebody who, who leads the way for others to follow. That's the idea of that word, founder. Okay, the, the pioneer, the, the trailblazer, right? That hero that people follow on a mission. And I couldn't help as I thought about this this week, but to think about some of the heroes 
of 9-11. I was sharing with my kids about it this weekend. Um, just, you know, hey, do, do you know what 9-11's all about? None of my kids were alive when those planes hit the Twin Towers, right? I blink and it feels like it was yesterday. And for those who were around, maybe if you weren't like two years old, maybe, maybe you, you remember exactly where you were when you first heard the news or first saw those images. So I was trying to explain to, to my kids what happened and why, and they were asking questions. And certainly the bottom line was evil was behind that. But also in the, in the, against that backdrop of evil, there was a lot of heroic activity. And I, I shared with them about the, the firefighters who, as, as hundreds of survivors are rushing down the stairs of a burning, soon-to-be-doomed building, who ran upstairs, like into the smoke and ash, to try to rescue people. Frankly, I, I, I think about some of you in this room who, as a result of what happened on 9-11, it altered your lives. Some of you went into combat because of that. Try to protect our, our freedom. And I appreciate that. I, I appreciate, as, as Pastor Bill prayed, we, we've, got, we've got heroes right now working in ICU wards. You know, it might not seem as heroic as rushing up into a burning building, but every day they're, they're choosing to walk into a place that is risky for them, where there's a lot of suffering, like anguish, a lot of serious suffering and, and death, and they're getting up every day and doing it for life. So let's not forget to pray for them. To, to, I, I hope you're praying daily for them. But the point is, for all this heroism, Jesus is like the model for that. Okay, we, we admire it because it's really hardwired. It's part of the image of God in us. But we Christians have all the reason to admire heroism in our fellow human beings because of the model that Jesus gave as the ultimate hero here. This is the scripture, I mean, there's a lot of scripture that points to our Lord and Savior and hero Jesus, but that's what that word founder actually means, hero or, or pioneer, trailblazer. Trailblazer, trailblazer for our salvation. He's, he's the one who, who brought many sons to glory. He's the founder of our salvation. But then it says he was made perfect through suffering. Now, what on earth could this mean? How is it possible that the Son of God, who ontologically, that's a big word in reference to his nature, from eternity past has always been perfect? How can perfection improve? How could Jesus be made perfect? In fact, if I said that to you, if it wasn't written in Scripture, you would probably, I'd probably get some emails, some, some questions about heresy. But the text says that he was made perfect through suffering. What does this mean? Well, first of all, what does it not mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus was somehow less perfect in his nature or that somehow he improved morally in his life from, from sinful to sinless. It does not mean that. So what does it mean? Well, let's Whenever you, you come upon something that's kind of confusing, instead of just skipping over it, take a deep dive. And, and one of the ways that we try to find out meanings of texts that are hard to understand is we interpret Scripture with Scripture. 
You know, do a word study as well. Of course, sometimes you find out in Greek, perfect means perfect. Okay, uh, so you're like, okay, well, let's look at some uh, context here. Well, I think there's actually several verses in our text that kind of clue us in to what mystery man here means when he says that Christ was made perfect through suffering. Verse 14 says that he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, I got to just say that some of these, these verses that I think help explain the meaning here of verse 10 are actually in themselves have some questions like, well, what does that mean? It seems vague. What, what are these things? And so I kind of had to start doing deep dives all over, all over this text. And, and, and so what he's talking about here, the same things are just the struggle of being human. That Jesus partook or he chose to experience and even learn experientially about the struggles of being human. Verse 17 says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, in order to accomplish his mission, he had to suffer as a full human being, a real person, a real human, not, not a form of a human or a shadow, but a true human that has to learn and grow and even struggle. Another principle of scripture interpretation in terms of looking, looking at, 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 a, at a context, is to look a little bit beyond within the book and see, is that word in that phrase used anywhere else? Well, it is. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, the, the, the writer says, although, he's talking about Christ again, he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So putting all that together, here's my best stab at what the author, what mystery man here means when he says that Jesus Christ was made perfect. It means that he became successful in his mission, which was to truly become one of us in life and to fully accomplish our salvation in his death. It means that he became successful in that mission to become truly one of us in life and to fully accomplish our salvation through his death. Al Mohler defined it or, or took a stab at it by saying that this phrase made perfect refers to Jesus' unflinching submission to the Father in the face of escalating difficulties. And he's talking about Jesus' life. Pastor Kent Hughes, I think, expands it a little bit. He says, he became perfect or complete in experiencing obedience in human flesh. He learned such things as patience and faith. I mean, how would God experience or learn faith other than to step into our life experience and have to walk through it in our own shoes? He became perfect in regard to temptation by suffering temptation. I mean, God had never been tempted before. And putting the tempter to flight. We see that in Matthew chapter 4 as he was truly tempted by the enemy. Christ's sufferings th through his atoning death on the cross rendered him horribly perfect as our atonement. Kent Hughes writes, perfect as our atonement because of that choice to endure life as a human 
And temptation, which frankly we'll talk about in a little bit, but Jesus went through temptations greater than any human has. And then to fulfill that mission and to give himself as an atoning sacrifice for us. So Jesus Christ was made perfect. He became successful in his life mission through suffering. Now here's the thing that struck me this week. Usually when it comes to the the problem of suffering, we humans blame God. We ask all kinds of questions like, why did God set it all up like this? That we would have to suffer. I mean, if he, if he knew from eternity past what would happen if he put that tree in the garden, why did he do it? Why do we have to suffer? And you know what? With that very question, the problem is the question. Our focus is on us. The truth of the gospel here is that God set it all up. And the question would be, should be, why did he set it up such that he would suffer? Because that's what he did. He set it all up such that he would suffer for us, and not only for us, meaning for our salvation, but that he would suffer with us. And that's the text here. That's the, the sense of this whole text here, is that God set this all up such that Jesus Christ would enter our life experience and suffer with us. Now, why on earth would he do something like that? And the answer is that he really cares about an authentic relationship with us. And I think a word that might help unlock this whole passage to us is, is the word empathy. I mean, what, what is the difference between sympathy and empathy? If you read my email, you know, right? But what's the difference between sympathy and empathy? I mean, sometimes we use that word, those words interchangeably, but nuance matters. And there's a nuanced difference between those words. So sympathy includes a, a feeling of pity or, or sorrow, but it can be and often is for somebody who's very far away. So I, I, see, a, I see a commercial of a, of a kid in Africa or something. I feel compassion. I feel some sympathy, right? Or I, I hear a story of somebody suffering right now in a, in a COVID ward, and, and I feel some sympathy for them. But it's distant, a little easier to turn off, Right? There's, there's a great gulf between us. But, but empathy requires entering into someone's suffering with them. Like you enter into that experience with them. And is that not what we need when we're hurting? I mean, sometimes we don't need or want even an answer. Right, ladies? We don't want him to tell you how to fix it. You want him to listen to you. You want him to share the load I say that as a guy who's still trying to figure that out, okay? Um, but, but you want you, to, to know that somebody cares and is, is, is hurting with you, that can go a long way to, to lightening the load that you're bearing in your suffering. So if you're going to truly empathize, you share painful experience. Now, so, so without the incarnation, which this text is about, it's about the cross, but it's about... God coming and living with us and walking in our shoes, could, could God have sympathized for us? Sure. He cognitively knows all. Could God have empathized with us? Could he have shared pre-incarnate, no incarnation, could he have actually shared our sufferings? No. And yet that's what he chose. That's what he wanted from eternity past. Now that blows 
my mind. But Jesus entered our experience, and, and, and make no mistake, his full mission, his complete mission was to save us, not just to feel bad for us, to, to rescue us, okay? To, we're going to see that. We're going to see this word propitiation later. It's, it's talking about partly about his atonement, the fact that he, he died to save us from God's wrath, died to save us from himself, but so that he could be just in doing so, right? He did that, but he also desired to be able to fully empathize with us. So remember that as we kind of walk through these verses here. Now Morgan and I worked together, um, actually he did most of this part, on a paraphrase of verse 10. So I want to bring us back to this so we don't lose the big picture here, verse 10, and then we're going to move on here and, and look at three ways, three benefits that he gives us that we see in this text that come from his suffering. But the paraphrase is, it was appropriate that God, who is the creator and purpose behind everything, in accomplishing the salvation of his family, should make the hero of their salvation, Jesus, successful in his rescue mission through his suffering and death. That's what I think. That's, a, that's, that's the um, wild Hamilton translation paraphrase of, of verse 10. All right. Well, point one here. Sermonette is over. And now that we've got that foundation, the first point that I see in this text is that because Jesus suffered, he considers us his brothers and his sisters. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now that that word sanctified simply means to make or set aside as holy or to cleanse. And this is a priestly reference. And we're going to be seeing throughout the book of Hebrews, uh, Jesus depicted as our high priest. And so this is talking here about Jesus and those that he makes holy through his death and resurrection, right? So he who sanctifies Jesus, those who are being sanctified are all those who trust in him. That's us, uh, his, his church. All have one source. Well, there, there was another um, vague reference uh, that, that took some diving into. What does that mean that we all have one source? Three, three Greek words, ex enos pantes, which literally means all are of one. And that's actually how the, if you have a King James version or New King James, that's how it actually translates it. All are of one. So Jesus and those who are sanctified, us all are of one. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, there's some controversy on this one. Okay, some folks, I mean, these are all godly people. Some scholars think that, um, that what it, he's talking about is God, right? That he's talking about Jesus and all who are saved have come from God. So if you have a New American Standard Version, you'll see your translation is, all are from the Father. Now, thankfully, it puts the Father in, in uh, italics because that's, that, that word is not in the text, but that's the interpretation of it, of the meaning. And the idea is that both Jesus and Christians all come from God. The, the challenge with that particular interpretation is that we Christians were certainly made by God, but we need to remember that Jesus Christ was not made by God. He was begotten, not made, as the Nicene Creed reminds us. Jesus Christ was God the Son, 
from eternity past. So it's a little harder to try to wrap my mind at least around how, 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 did, how did Jesus have God as his origin? Now, uh, that's what my ESV Bible says. Um, some ESV, a later edition actually says source. That's what we put up there. All right? Well, another, another thought here is that this is a reference to common humanity. And I think that's probably the best um, understanding here is that both Jesus and those that he sanctifies are sons of Adam. Jesus really was a human being, right? Through his mother, Mary, he really did uh, trace his genealogy back to Adam. And so we have the same source. Now, the thing here that that, that we need to realize is that that was because of great intentionality on his part, okay? Jesus determined to become really man and to enter into our life experience through his incarnation. And so the NIV chooses, and I think rightly so, chooses that interpretation. And and so it does kind of maybe paraphrase the, the, the Greek a little bit, but it says all are of the same family. And so we see here in the context of of this text, where I think the author is trying to say, I think that fits, that Jesus intentionally became flesh. In other words, he came into our life experience so that he might make us holy and facilitate our adoption into the family of God. And because of his great life and his work on the cross, we are given privileged status as as sons and daughters. And actually, the, the, the... ESV here says sons, but if you actually look at the Greek word, it can be translated sons and daughters. It's not gender uh, specific here, okay? Sons and daughters of God, or we could say, and, and in this text we see, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes to Galatians and says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So in verse 12, we see a quote from Psalm 22. Verse 12 says, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now again, this is one of those times where it's good not to just keep moving, because if you just look fast here, it might look like Mystery Man here is trying to proof text a little bit. Yank a few verses out of context just to kind of make his point. But if you go back and you look at Psalm 22, you realize that this was a messianic psalm that was actually quite well known to the Hebrews. And it begins with Jesus's lament on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and the psalm describes his, the experience and the emotions that Jesus would later feel, right? That he would later feel of being mocked and, and tortured on the cross. But the psalm ends with jubilant praise, which foreshadowed Christ's, de- Christ's resurrection and his exaltation. And, and the way that, that mystery man quotes it here from the Greek Septuagint in verse 22, or I'm sorry, not in verse 22, in verse 12, quoting 22, he writes, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So in other words, the subject here, I is Jesus Christ leading The idea here is that he's leading us, his brothers and sisters, in singing praise to God. So when we look back at Psalm 22 through the the lens of Christ's sufferings, we see that he's setting an example, even for us as we suffer, of praising 
God. So let me encourage you, when you suffer, all right, when you experience suffering, look to God for help. And, and we do that pretty naturally, actually. When we're in trouble, it's natural to cry out for help. Look to God for comfort. Look to God for comfort. May, may he be the one, may you experience him Though you, are, you may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. May, may you experience him more strongly than ever. So look to him for comfort. But also, let's not forget to follow the example of Jesus. And in our weakness and in our sufferings, worship God. Like we see Jesus did. So what we, what we see here in the Psalms is we see through the, the Holy Spirit's inspiring David a little bit about what went on in Jesus' heart and mind as he hung on the cross. And as he looked forward to what the, the glory that awaited him, how he was able to even worship God. You see, when you do that, when you're suffering, when you're on that sick bed, or you're in that ICU ward, okay, or when you're looking at a piece of paper with a really bad diagnosis on it, or when you're tasting of rejection from somebody, and you are in your, your soul anguishing and suffering, right? If you can look up to God for help, and for comfort, but also say, I still worship you. you. You are worthy. You are worthy to me. Now you're getting into the deep stuff of, of why we're here. To, to know him, to, to worship him, to, to enjoy him, and to declare to him first and all who are watching that he really is worthy. That, that the devil was wrong when he accused Job of just following God for the benefits. You see? So here we see in Christ the example of worship and suffering, showing the world that, that God is indeed worthy to us. And what's interesting here too, when we, when we look at the way that, uh, that, that Mr. Man here quotes this psalm, he actually says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The idea here is that Jesus is actually with us and actually leading us in singing God's praise. That's why it's important that we sing from the heart. That's why we do it when we gather, when we worship him. It's like Jesus is actually with us as our leader, leading by example, singing praise to God. Well, the, the second and the third reference here um, that you see in verse 13, these are actually one section here, are from Isaiah chapter 8. And they also fit within the context of messianic prophecy. Verse 13 says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And behold, I and the children God has given me. One commentator wrote here regarding this, this section, verse 12 and 13. Here our preacher calls us to marvel that in the words of Psalm 22, that the glorious divine, the gloriously divine and messianic son identifies himself without embarrassment with his sinful struggling siblings. I wonder, um, kids, or maybe adults, or teenagers, I wonder if you have ever been embarrassed by one of your siblings. Well, you know what? Jesus isn't embarrassed to call us brothers. And you know what? That is all because of his grace. It's not because we don't do things that are embarrassing or that should cause a lot of embarrassment. He's, he's covered us. He's covered that stuff in his blood and he's dressed us in his righteousness so he's given us the means by which he might be proud of us, his siblings. 
That's pretty awesome. So because Jesus Christ suffered, he considers us, he calls us his brothers and sisters. Well, number two, because Jesus suffered, he delivers us from the power of death. And and you may have noticed, um, we sung a number of songs about death this morning and about the power that he gives us over death. Look at verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Well, what are these same things? Well, it means being human, right? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death will, were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, Pastor Kent Hughes, I thought, had a, had a helpful uh, picture of, of death. And that was the paralyzing death stare of a cobra on its prey. I mean, you ma- imagine that little rabbit, that little mouse, that little creature, you know, eyes wide open, taking a gulp, seeing that cobra reared up and ready to strike, realizing that's it. The paralyzing death stare of a cobra on its prey. Now, you know, one one thing I've noticed is that we Americans in particular, I mean, nobody likes death. Everybody's afraid of death. But we Americans are particularly adverse to death such that we've tried to erect a society that totally ignores it. Or when we pay attention to it, we try to make fun of it. That's what all the zombie stuff's about. All right? Uh, it, it's, it's the siren on the other side. And, and so, so what we, 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 we try to ignore it. And so we, we, the first thing you do at an accident scene, if there's a dead body, what do we do? We, we cover it up. Well, I've been in places and countries where that's not what happens. Where you can, I remember driving down the road in Moscow and seeing bodies laying there after a car wreck that had been there for some time, just laying there. But, but we try to ignore death. We don't want to deal with it. It gets in the way of our chi. I don't believe in chi, by the way. Somebody asked me that the other day. Five reasons that Pastor Kent Hughes gives us for why we fear death. What, what are we afraid of anyway as human beings? Well, the first is the fear of pain. Now, the truth is, medically, I'm no doctor. Ask Dr. Joshua about it. But most deaths aren't incredibly painful, doctors say. Some are. Okay, some are. But many are not. But there is, there is sometimes some pain involved in the process. Um, and there's the fear of pain. There's the fear of separation. Separation from those we love and, frankly, what we know. There's the fear of the unknown. The fear of non-being. That's a huge fear that I think many in our culture share. The fear of our consciousness just being lost forever as our brain rots in the grave. So unless you do something really, really, really significant to try to gain immortality, like you cure cancer, or you write a best-selling book that people are going to read 300 years from now, you are lost. You're gone. No one even knew you ever lived after about 100 years. And there's that fear of, of non-being. And then there's the fear that lurks and should lurk of eternal punishment. For those who don't know Jesus. Well, here's the point. Jesus said in Revelation 1, 17 through 18, he said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
So we Christians, we look to Jesus, right? We look to Jesus to overcome that fear of death. And so that's why we, as the words we sung from 1 Corinthians 15 are true. Paul writes about when, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, in other words, when we die and our, those who are in Christ, our souls, right, are given immortal bodies or imperishable bodies and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So it's, it's right for us to not like death but for the Christian, we love what lies right beyond it, like a millisecond beyond it, right? Just on the other side of the Rubicon, there lies eternal life and glory. That's the end of the race. That's the end of the race. And so Paul writes, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what does it mean to, to, to be delivered from the power of death? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean that we have license to go live like evil Knievel. Okay, you're not supposed to disregard your life or others for no good reason, right? We are supposed to value life, to be pro-life, not only for the unborn, but for all of the, for all life. We should be pro-life. But there is great power that is given to us to serve God and others when we don't fear death. When we, when we have that freedom to live in self-abandonment instead of self-preservation, this is what gives these medical heroes, or can, I mean, many of them who don't know the Lord are just doing their jobs, you know? But it's, it, it's what can give you confidence to, to walk into a room full of virus that could kill you, but to serve people. It's what could give you confidence to, to go to a dangerous place to take the gospel to an unreached people group. The, the first question of the, the Heidelberg Catechism, and I love this, I love the answer, but it is, what is the only comfort in life and death. What is the only comfort in life and death? And this is for the Christian. And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall in my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me heartily willing and, and ready henceforth to live unto him. So Jesus Christ, because he suffered, we see according to our text, he delivered us from the power of death. And, and number three, because Jesus suffered, he helps us when we too are tempted. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be make, made like his brothers in every respect. Now, I just want to emphasize this. I've already kind of said this, but I want to emphasize it again. Okay, in every respect, he was made like his brothers. So, so the, the doctrine of the incarnation is not docetism. That's an ancient heresy. But, but there's a lot of folks on the street walking around, a lot of Christians who actually kind of look at Jesus' life through a, docet, through a docetist perspective, which, which basically is this. Hey, yeah, he, yes, he was man, but he was the son of God. 
So he had this turbo boost button he could push. You know? So when things got rough, he kind of pushed that and kind of get through it. You know? Um, uh, and, and, you know, he's able to do these miracles just through his own strength instead of through dependence on the Holy Spirit. And, and, and at all points, he knew everything. I mean, as a little baby, you know, he's cooing in his mother's arms, but he's also thinking about the molecular structure that he's holding together. Well, actually, being born as a human, we see in Philippians 2, the, the kenosis, the emptying, he emptied himself of his divine prerogative, not his divine nature, and so truly experienced growth and learning as a human. So there's all kinds of mystery here, all kinds of things I don't know. When did Jesus fully understand that he was the son of God? We don't know. Right? At what point? Was it when he was baptized by John? Was it, was it uh, his bar mitzvah? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it does tell us that there was real growth. There was real temptation and struggle in his life. And in every struggle that you face, he faced it too, not easier, but actually harder. Al Mohler put it this way. He said, he was made of the same flesh that we're made of and shared in our same experiences, yet he remained without sin. Though he was creator of all, he became hungry. Not like fake hungry, but like really hungry. He ate, drank, slept, ached, and shared in these things that all humanity knows and experiences. Pastor Kent Hughes put it this way. He said, may we reverently understand that the incarnation meant that Christ progressively smelled like an infant, a boy, and a man. He thought like a child before he thought like a man. He knew the same range of human emotions as we did as he grew to maturity. Now, it, it might be easy to think, well, because he never sinned, because he was the only man who had, who had a perfect nature, Okay, maybe, maybe the temptations weren't really hard for him. Well, well, the truth is, according to Scripture, the truth is these temptations were harder for him than they are for us. You know why? We give in to them. But he resisted. And, and you know what temptations do, don't you? They continue to rise, often until we give in or until the Lord delivers us. He, he rode them all the way out and resisted. And it, it wasn't just any temptation. He had the devil himself coming after him. And you know, when we think about his temptations, what were they? At the end of the day, they were to take the easier road. They were to abandon the mission, to take the easier, the easier road. So he struggled more greatly even than we do, and yet fully resisted to temptation. And in order to really help us, according to our text, he wanted to fully understand, not just cognitively, but experientially. The full range of human life and experience and, and temptation and, and struggle. To walk in our shoes. So we read, he did this so that he might become a merciful, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So he's able to help us when we're tempted. Now I see in these verses three ways, and I'm going to just kind of go through these quickly as we, as we um, land the plane here. 
But three ways in which he helps us. Well, the first is that he helps us as a mediator, as a merciful and faithful high priest, the text says. Now that, 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 that language of high priestness, okay, that we're going to have to look through and consider as we move through Hebrews, it's kind of a foreign thought to American Baptists, right? You know, maybe if you're a Catholic, it might be a little easier to get, you know, the whole priesthood idea. Uh, but even there, it's a bit different. But this was very familiar terminology to the Hebrews. So what did priests do? Well, they, one of, their, one of their, their, their main functions was to advocate to God for the people, right? In the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices to God, to try to atone for the sins of the people. And so Jesus Christ advocates to God for us. And we read here that he's, he's merciful and he's faithful, well, to be merciful means not only feeling, but action, right? You might feel bad for somebody who's broken down next to the road, but if you don't stop, that's not mercy. Mercy requires action. And so for, for, for Jesus said, we, we read that, 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 uh, that Jesus Christ not only felt for us, but he took action. One writer put it this way, to be merciful, one must act to alleviate another's pain. Jesus emotionally gathered up our needs to himself and then in mercy did something about them. And that's what he stands ready to do for you. And he's faithful for our sake. He was faithful to accomplish his mission on the cross. And so we read in Timothy, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So he's our mediator. He's also our savior. And that's where this word propitiation comes in. Now, let me just say, this is a priestly term, and some folks don't like it. In fact, some people have tried to translate that word, which really does mean propitiation, expiation. And that means the washing away of sin, because it, it, it's, it's not quite as sharp a word, right? Or even others have translated it atonement, okay? And we know that Jesus did atone for our sins. But here we see that word propitiation, this priestly term that, that actually... Um, uh, has the meaning that it implies that God is angry. That's why people don't like the word, because they don't like the concept of an angry God. But the Bible tells us that God is indeed angry at sin. And let me just ask you this. Would you really want a God who wasn't angry at the sin of racism or child trafficking, exploitation, right? Right? We're okay with that. We just don't want a God that's angry with our sin, right? Al Mohler wrote that propitiation enables God to be both just and justifier. Without the satisfaction of God's righteousness and the punishment of sin, he could not justly declare sinners righteous. Thus, propitiation stands at the very heart of the gospel. Because of Jesus' propitiation, all of those who are in Jesus, all, all of those who are in him, no longer stand under God's wrath because of, of his work that satisfied the anger of, of God at our sin on the cross. Because of that, God is no longer angry at me or at you if you are his child, if you have put your faith in him. And we need to remember that. As Christians, we may experience God's discipline, but it's a discipline of love, not of wrath. Remember that. So Jesus is our mediator. He's our 
Savior. He's also our, our helper. He understands. He experienced it. He's, he's ready to help in your time of need. In a, in a few weeks, we'll, we'll make our way to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, that says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. So are you in trouble? Are, are you being tempted beyond what you think you can bear? Call to him for help. He, he's eager. He's, he's ready to help you. He actually understands not just because he knows everything, but because he experienced the same thing or the same category of temptation and struggle. Well, why did Jesus do all this? Why did he suffer as a real man and, and go to the cross for us? Let me tell you, it's not because we're cuddly. It's not because he just couldn't help it. We were so wonderful. No, bear in mind, we were like enemies. It's because he's gracious. That's what the doctrines of grace are all about. He is glorious. He's a glorious Savior. One of John Bunyan's favorite writers was a guy named Lewis Bailey. And uh, Lewis Bailey wrote an imaginary dialogue between a redeemed soul and Jesus. And here's how, here's how it goes. Soul. Lord, why did you let yourself be taken when you might have escaped your enemies? Christ, that your spiritual enemies should not take you and cast you into the prison of outer darkness. Soul, Lord, why did you let yourself be bound? Christ, that I may loose the cords of your iniquities. Soul, Lord, why did you let yourself be lifted up on a cross? Christ, that I may lift you up with me to heaven. Soul, Lord, why was your side opened with a spear? Christ, that you might have a way to come near to my heart. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to treasure it. Help us to seek to dive deeper when we read things that we don't understand out of faith that there are deep truths that you have for us that we need that can encourage us and lord we thank you that all of your word points us to our lord and our savior and our hero jesus we thank you not only for his sacrifice on the cross but we thank you for his life we thank you for his willingness to struggle and to be tempted so that he may show us a way and so that he may empathetically understand and, and help us in our time of need Help us to go to you every day and throughout the days, Lord, when we need your help. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day that they would cry for help with sincerity, simply crying out and asking you to save them. Lord, we know that you will save them from eternal damnation, Lord, and give them a great purpose in knowing you and making you known. And in, in, in the name of uh, your son, we pray. Amen.